0: That was the sound of brave protesters in central Moscow this evening chanting no war protests in other cities, reports already of numerous uh, arrests. Also hearing reports, by the way, of uh, large numbers of Russians looking to leave the country, a rush to book one-way tickets out of the country following Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement of partial mobilization of reservists for the war in Ukraine, a war, an invasion that obviously is not going well. So as Russia suffers setback after setback as a result of this Ukrainian counteroffensive, it seems Putin is doubling down, not just with this partial uh, mobilization, but also the threat of using nuclear weapons. And an ominous speech last night from the Russian president. So joining us to talk about what this all symbolizes, about the situation as it stands right now in Ukraine and where this all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Molly McHugh, lead writer at or write a writer lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare, senior advisor with the Stand Up Republic Foundation. Molly, thank you so much for making some time for us. You're welcome to the program.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: What do you make of what we're seeing out of Russia, both people taking to the streets to protest and large numbers uh, attempting to flee?
1: I think there's sort of the two sides. And I think what we're seeing from Russians and the people in the streets is just This has never been a popular war for them. Uh, Nobody really wants to mobilize. Um, There are growing signs of sort of unrest and unraveling. The question in Russia is always how widespread is it? How sustainable is it? Um, Putin's regime has been very good at sort of letting people vent steam and tamping it back down. Um, But obviously this is a a bit of a different situation because of the mobilization. Um, And I think what we saw from Putin today uh, is really just You know, every time he knows there's not really great options for him, he just gets out the nuclear thing and waves it around um, because he knows that does limit um, how Western countries view possibility. And I think in this particular instance, we need to continue to be led by Ukraine and Ukraine's vision for how to finish this war. Um, We need to be aware of what is happening in Russia and what Putin is saying, but we need to understand he is saying these things not from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness and fear. He wants us to be afraid and we shouldn't be afraid. We should be angry. We should be clear. We should be focused on what needs to be done to help Ukraine finish the war. So they no longer have this threat of Russia looming over them and thus added leverage uh, sort of looming over the rest of the West uh, and NATO countries as well.
0: Right. I mean, that's the big takeaway. This is all, uh, you know, represents what's happening on the ground in Ukraine and these uh, successive victories for Ukrainian forces in in this counteroffensive. I mean, at the same time, look, we knew Putin wasn't just going to quietly surrender. So. If, if if Ukraine was to succeed, I guess we knew at some point we'd enter mm-hmm. this realm where, where Putin is, is desperate and, and maybe then to some extent dangerous.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is always the, the, the most intense debates amongst the Russia watchers and the people in the region versus people further away. It tends to be the, so what's going on in Putin's mind? What's the trigger point? And I think the best analysis, I'm in Estonia right now. I spend a lot of time in the Baltic states, which uh, border Russia, which are very clear about, uh, you know, with their history, with their uh, more recent relations um, about what Russia is, what the threats are. They've all been very forward-leaning on how they're helping Ukraine. Um, and I think the, for them, it's Putin is the most uh, unpredictable when he is operating from a position of strength. So when he invaded Georgia, when he attacked Syria or when he started helping the Syrian war, you know, and and attacking Syrian rebels on the side of Assad, when he used chemical or or sort of encouraged the use of chemical weapons in Syria, you know, when these things are happening. He does these things when he feels unrestrained. And that is not what he feels right now on uh, Ukraine. So I think that's an important bit of nuance. I think the other piece is really especially the language he was using in his speech this morning, which was specifically talking about nuclear threats in the context of territorial defense. Russian nuclear doctrine specifies that um, they can use uh, small nuclear weapons, so tactical nuclear weapons, as tools of basically conventional warfare to stop an invasion of Russia. So basically what they're talking about is nuking their own territory, which is crazy for the rest of us to even contemplate but it has been a part of Russian nuclear doctrine since the year 2000 so um, it's uh, there's some nuance in what's going on and there's always the but what if he goes for a big strike in Ukraine what if he goes for what if they're more serious about targeting one of these nuclear power plants which would obviously be a much more significant um, yeah. potential impact than, than a tactical nuclear weapon? There's lots of options he could do. I think the the most important thing we can stay focused on is not these what-ifs, existential fears, but that we know the fastest way to end this war is to help Ukraine, give them what they need, let them win the war within their pre-2014 borders, um, uh, let them secure those borders and rebuild themselves, and then let all of us, including Ukraine, which will help lead us in this process— figure out a way forward with whatever comes next in moscow
0: i did want to touch in you mentioned you know you're in estonia and it was interesting to see uh, estonia's prime minister make it clear that estonia will never recognize what she called the fake referenda in occupied territories of ukraine we've seen these this unwavering principle from many of these baltic countries lithuania especially uh, what does it tell us about you know the the threat that these countries see in russia what's at stake for them and, and why they're on on the side they're on
1: yeah, absolutely. It's an it's a really important point, and you know, there's huge uh, Baltic diasporas still in um, in Canada and in the United States. Yeah. Uh, people who left after uh, uh, the beginning of World War II, but when there was the Russian occupation of the or Soviet, excuse me, occupation of the region, and then the Germans, and then the Soviets again. But in in the in the Baltic context, that was how this began. where fake referenda uh, allowing? Um, Soviet troops to come in and establish military bases in their countries. And that was sort of the beginning of the period of independence they had from the end of World War One to the beginning of World War II. So they're very aware. And all of them had grandparents or fathers, uh, mothers who died uh, in resistance to the Soviet occupation, being sent to Gulag, being sent to hard labor, being deported Um, they're very aware of what this cost is and what the Ukrainians are facing now. And when they hear these stories of mass graves, of Ukrainian children being taken into Russia, uh, of people disappearing in filtration camps, um, of sort of the mass carnage, the mass civilian carnage that the Russians uh, seem very comfortable using, they know what this is, they know what it looks like, um, and they know the only way out of it Uh, is to sort of end the possibility that it can continue.
0: So there's the question of whether Putin is going to try to hold these votes, how the international community should respond to these votes, whether when Putin talks about Russian territory, he's talking about these regions. How do we approach that aspect specifically?
1: It's a really good point. It's exactly what he will do. It's exactly why they're holding these referenda in two days now or, or whatever crazy thing it is. Um, because then he'll say, this is our territory. If you do anything here, if you try to, to do anything here, and they'll say it's a Western, if the Ukrainians start to attack these uh, territories that he claims, he will say it's a NATO plot so that it's really us attacking him. Right. Um, then we have these other options, including the use of nuclear weapons as a potential retaliation. Um, it's the same stuff they kind of tried in Crimea. It was a different situation then in terms of where the West was uh, and who was supporting Ukraine and where Ukraine was itself. Um, But that's the kind of rhetoric he'll use. And I think the response from certainly NATO countries um, needs to be very clear, which is any use of any kind of nuclear weapon, any kind of chemical weapon, any kind of these sort of banned uh, technologies... Um, Any use of this means we all come down on you. There is no scaled response. There is no, like, you can do a little and maybe nobody will respond. But like, there just has to be clear messaging on this from us that there is no way out for you if you do this. Because that's the only reason Putin would use a nuclear weapon if he thought it was a way to preserve his rule, preserve um, his survivability of his regime. Um, And we just need to make it clear that it's actually the thing that will guarantee its fall the fastest.
0: You know, we spoke uh, at the outset of this invasion and, you know, you alluded to it already. The message now is the same as it was then. We need to give Ukraine what it needs. But I think what we've seen in recent weeks, it's been a real vindication of that approach, hasn't it?
1: It is. And I think um, uh, I think we're always, especially we in, in the United States, where obviously a lot of weapons and a lot of intelligence and other support has gone to Ukraine. Um, we're always very willing to pat ourselves on the back in this. And it's great. But uh, I think we need to, sh- to to really acknowledge that the strategic success in the fighting is Ukrainian. It is natively Ukrainian. It is what they have been training for for eight years. Um, the the sort of newer strategic victories that we're seeing um, in the Kharkiv region uh, in the south. Uh, in the East are purely of Ukrainian design and action. Um, So it is a vindication of our decision to move forward and support Ukraine to give them what they need to execute the war. Uh, But I think we need to now be revitalized in that energy that all of our allies need to be very clear that this is not the time to sort of pause and evaluate. It's a time to continue ahead. Um, Putin can't mobilize that quickly. They don't have supplies in place in the way that they would like. Um, This is the window for Ukraine to get this done um, before there's a chance of sort of a bigger, you know, expanse of cannon fodder, for lack of a a better way to put it, coming from the Russian side. Um, This war doesn't need to continue forever, and it doesn't need to claim so many lives. And we can help end it if we give Ukraine what they're asking for.
0: Absolutely. Well said. Molly, thank you so much for the inside. Really appreciate making some time for us here today. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Molly McHugh, as mentioned, joining us uh, from Estonia, lead writer at GrayPower.us, senior advisor, stand-up Republic Foundation, writer, lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare. What a really pivotal moment right now in this whole situation. And yes, a very real possibility that this ends in a Ukrainian victory, but also the real possibility uh, that Putin does something crazy. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.